right stuff when enough is enough. That I always give my standard disclaimer before whenever I talk, and that is that I'm not a pastor. I have no theological training. I'm an accountant. I spent uh, probably 30 years as a Baptist, and I probably spent 20 years as an Catholic, and I spent 10 years as an Adventist, so I'm still figuring out what's going on here. I don't plan on leaving, by the way. I'm staying. This is the only place to be if you want to get to heaven now. Not that he won't take other people, but once you know the truth, he kind of holds you to that level. But one of the things that uh, I was always interested in was the Ten Commandments. And when I read through the Ten Commandments and I said, well, I haven't done most of, you know, most of those things and I can just basically ask God to forgive me for the difference. And then I started reading in Matthew where it says that if you think bad thoughts, it's like committing murder. And if you think you want to take, then I said, well, life has gotten a lot harder now. You know, I mean, now, now you got to watch what you think. And so I was, as an accountant, <clears throat> they seem to be rulesy people, if you know what they are. They're little type A personality people. They hold everything. They like everything to add up. And so for me, having some form of a checkbox worked out really well. I like rules. I, I, I'm a rulesy kind of guy. And, uh, and as I've studied, I've found out that God is not so much... He gives us the rules to try to protect us, but he wants us to be more kind, loving, and understanding than just following a bunch of rules. And uh, that came home to me quite nicely last night. When I was, uh, I've been going down to the meetings every week or every night for the last eight nights. And one of the jobs that I have down there is, is that I, when the parking lot fills up, then my job is to stand at the entrance to the parking lot, the main entrance, and do this. Or this. That's, that's my job. And then if there was somebody that had a, a, a disabled placard, then they could come in. And if there were people that were going to drop somebody off and, or pick someone up, they could come in, but with the idea that they would leave. And I know that a lot of you will find this hard to believe, but some people told me that they were either dropping people off or picking people up and their cars never came back out. And so I started getting angry about that. And so I was keeping track of which cars came in and didn't go out. And then I remembered that this one car on Thursday night, she said, I'm going to pick somebody up. And she came in and her car never left. And the next night she came in and she said, I'm going to drop somebody off. But her car never left. And so by now, I was feeling that rules these wise, that's not right. And so then I started thinking, and so I went to her car, and I had a piece of paper, and I wrote down, breaking the ninth commandment 
is just as bad as breaking the fourth commandment and left it on her window. Now, do you think God would let me off the hook? I mean, I really wanted to do that. And I did do it, and I left it there, and I went away. And I went inside, and I'm inside the meeting, and they're talking about how God wants to, you to understand and, and be, be more loving and compassionate. And, and so I left and went and got the note and took it off the car and brought it home. But, but it, did, I was, it was a matter that laws were important, but that's not the most important part. I don't really know what was why that lady would lie to me about that or those other five or six people that that would lie to get in there and then try to find some place to park. But uh, I've determined that little old Adventist ladies can be very mean. So <laughs> some can be very mean. Not all. But when you you look through covet, I remember a story that my wife told me that uh, when her and her grandmother were either coming out here on by her grandmother lives in Colorado and sometimes she would stay with her grandmother and they would take the train out to, back to Sacramento because the grandmother never never hadn't dr- driven until she was very late in age, and so uh, and I remember my wife saying. Uh, Gee, I really want that car. And the grandmother said, No, you don't want that car, because that's his car. You want a car like that car. And so I used to believe that for a while. That was, you know, I mean, if I saw a car or a house or clothes or whatever that someone else had, uh, I, I would like to have one like that particular one. And then it dawned on me that that's probably just as covetousness. That's still part of coveting. I covet that particular item. I want that. I'm willing to do what it takes. Benjamin Franklin stated that in his opinion, money will do everything. Or let's see. Ben says, he that is of the opinion that money will do everything may well be suspected of doing everything for money. You know, that if we want more, then what we do is we go out and we try to get more and we become very selfish. So the definition of covetousness is selfishness, concerned only to satisfy one's own desire and prepared to sacrifice the feelings, needs, etc. of others in order to do this. So when somebody covets something or wants something, then they're willing to give up their time, their effort, and their energy to try to get it. And in today's society, it's a matter that it, it's, it's a, a society where people want to try to accumulate things. I mean, I've seen a sign or a bumper sticker that says, he with the most toys when, he, when you die wins. You know, the thing is to get as much as you possibly can. The uh, our prophet Ellen White in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets says that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, 
nor his ass or anything else that's the neighbor. The tenth commandment strikes at the very root of all sins, prohibiting the selfish desires from which spring the sinful act. He who is obedient to God's law from indulging even a sinful desire for which belongs to another will not be guilty of any act of wrong toward his fellow creatures. So she's saying don't if, that that when that the tenth commandment is where things start. That uh, it, the law tells us in Exodus twenty seventeen, which is basically a repeat of what I read. But I did find it interesting that two things are changed around in that one. In the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And in Deuteronomy, he changed it to wife and then house. So I don't know whether something happened between then that he decided that one was more important than the other. If we look in Matthew 5.19, Matthew 5.19, it says, Who... Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so the Lord points out that simply because it's farther down on the list and it's number 10 and it deals with your thoughts, it's still just as important that the Lord, the Lord knows our thoughts. He knows what we think. And so we need to ask for for uh, for forgiveness even for our thoughts, not just our actions. And in a little while we'll look at what happens when somebody has desires about things or desires about people. In Colossians 3.5, Colossians 3.5, There whoever therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, for fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul can, treats idolatry or covetousness as being idolatry, which then kind of moves it higher up into the uh, Ten Commandments hierarchy there about having a, idols and worshiping them. And in Micah 2, 1 through 1 and 2, Micah 2, 1 and 2, Woe to those who desire iniquity and work out evils in their beds. All morning light they practice it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and they take them also houses and seize them, so they oppress a man who has a house and a man as his inheritance. And so all of our bad activities, for the most part, start in our mind. We think about that. If we, uh, if, if you look at uh, David, for example, uh, he looked on Bathsheba and started thinking about that. He didn't initially decide to take her. He just saw her and thought about it. And as he thought about it more and more, then he ended up taking her, which led to a whole line of problems, pretty much messed up the rest of his life. 
started just by a glance over the field, over the wall of the house. God thinks that it's important that we not have idolatry and covetousness in Exodus 18.21. Exodus 18.21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness and placing place such over them rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of ten. When Moses is trying to break up the kingdom into smaller groups that are easier to handle, thanks to his father-in-law's suggestion that one of the things that they were supposed to as they were supposed to hate covetousness. That the problem is, is that when you think about it, then all of a sudden you decide that it's something that you might want to have and you end up getting yourself in a lot of trouble. Uh, the, the problem with covetousness, since it's in your mind, you don't you can't get in trouble just for thinking that it takes some action in order to make it work. But what happens is pretty soon you convince yourself you need something. And one of the when we were in Sacramento. Uh, we had this little bitty house. It wasn't a little bitty. It had three bedrooms and was on a corner and was about, I don't know, 1,200 square feet or something like that. And and uh, and we were happy living there. And uh, one of the classes I took in school was a real estate class. And this guy that taught it was a real estate agent. And, and uh, we got to be fairly good friends and... Uh, so we were visiting one day, and he says, you know, you really need to live in Fair Oaks, which is a, a fairly reasonably good neighborhood. Uh, uh, it's a good zip code to be in. And so uh, uh, we started, and he, and he started playing on, real, people that sell are interested in selling because they get commissions. You all understand that? They're not necessarily think that that's the best car you could ever own or the nicest house you could ever have. They basically want you to buy something so they get something out of it. But so he, he, he says you need to. And so pretty soon I started thinking, well, I'm a CPA. I'm a partner in a firm. I really need to have a bigger house and a better house. And so we moved from this little 1,100 square foot house that we paid fifteen thousand dollars for back in 1972 into this house we paid $130,000 for in 1980. And uh, and we put in a swimming pool in the backyard. I mean, and it was a nice house. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And I feel pretty guilty about that now. But uh, it's a matter that I wanted to have all the things that other partners had. And so we had a friend, and we went over to his house, and he had a thing, it's called an oil lamp. Have you ever seen an oil lamp? An oil lamp, it has kind of a little statue in the middle, and then it has fishing wire going down the side of it, and then it lets out little drops of oil. And so these little drops of oil go down the fishing wire with a little light behind it. I mean, and, and I was fascinated by that little, and so I had to have one of those. He had one, I wanted one, it looked nice. And all it ever did, it, we had it in our house for a little while, didn't we? 
And then we ended up putting it in the garage, and then it fell over, and all the oil spilled out and marked the garage floor, and then trying to get rid of it because it's almost a, hazard, a hazardous material because you have this oil. And it was a terrible thing, but I needed it because that's what I wanted. And uh, it, it was just a, a cute little thing, but it's a matter, it's something I had to have right then. And I, I've seen that with my three children. I have three, three children, and they're all growing. The youngest is now 25 or 26 or 27. <laughs> oh, my goodness, how time flies when you're having fun. So 20, the youngest is 27, and so, and I've, and I've seen how much stuff you can actually accumulate in a short period of time. And when we left Sacramento, we had stayed in that house that we bought in 1980 until 2005 when we sold it and, and moved to San Diego. And we were going to rent a, a condominium. It only had two bedrooms and just one little garage. And so it meant uh, I have a four-bedroom house and a living room and a dining room and a kitchen and a two-car garage full of stuff because nature abhors a vacuum you have to put something in there you can't have you can't have a vacant wall you can't have something not on some shelf it, it ju- you just have to have something there and so we had to our neighbor's chagrin a 3 week garage sale and we would just take stuff out because we were going to move and so we weren't going to have near the room, and I wasn't going to pay for storage. I won't ask you how many of you have storage units in here, but a friend of mine, his mother passed away 20 years ago, and he uh, had to, uh, and he had to get her house cleaned out, and so he put all of her belongings into a storage unit that he paid $50 a month for. And 20 years later, so that's $600 times 20 years is $12,000 that he paid for storage. And he went in and he says, I've really got to do something. And he opened it all and it was all moth-eaten and rust-corroded. And he threw it all in the garbage after paying $12,000 to store his mother's stuff because we don't have time and so and that's so what we do is our neighbors across the street just moved out and they went over and bought or rented three storage units right over here for $80 a month three three at 80 bucks a month 240 bucks to store stuff that someday you may use and so for us this was the the best fun I ever had in my life we got rid of Everything we owned when we left fit in a 24-foot U-Haul truck. Forty years of marriage or 30, 36 years of marriage and everything we owned. I called my children and told them, come get those soccer trophies you got when you were six years old if you want them or I'm throwing them out. Come get your homework, come get your books, come get your old clothes that you've stored with me all these years because I am finished. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Now, for some of you children that are sitting with your parents today, watch out. This could be the last week you get to leave your stuff at their house. And so we, we, we just got rid of everything and anything that didn't get. And we left it out overnight 
and in the morning we'd come by and would notice that somebody stopped during the middle of the night and stole something, and we said, hooray, thank you, Lord. It's gone. We don't have to get rid of it. And so we sold what we could, and then we get put, gave the rest of the goodwill, or whatever the goodwill wouldn't take, we took to the dumps. And it was gone. And when we moved down to Southern California and San Diego, everything we owned was in this 20. And that included my office and all my tax files and my desk and everything else. And there was still room in the truck. And in a mere (laughs) 18 months, (laughs) when we moved from San Diego to Beaumont, it took two 18-foot trucks to get our stuff up here. And in all honesty, we, we got rid of our refrigerator, we got rid of our bed, we got rid of our couch. So we had to replace all of those. So that did take up some room. But it's a matter we've, we managed to accumulate some more things even then. And... Uh, and so it, it's a matter that things have a way of showing up. My parents were born in, during the Depression. And some of you lived through it or have parents that lived through the Depression. And their, their thought was that you never got rid of anything because you could need it someday. I mean, my father had used bicycle tires that he kept. Because the rubber, you could cut the rubber up and then use it to tie a post up or something like that. And so I come from good genes like that. But the Lord is saying that that we we have too much stuff. That I, I think what we ought to have is we ought to have these, these the Beaumont Seventh Day Adventist Church garage sale, and it ought to be good stuff. You know, it ought, shouldn't be things that sell for a quarter or something. We ought to get rid of some of the stuff we've got. Because what's going to happen to it when Jesus comes back? It's all going to burn up. There's a story of a gentleman that came to an evangelistic series, and uh, he started paying attention, and he read, and when it dawned on him that things, that the only thing that was going to go to heaven was hev- his his character, uh, he went around and, and put little sticky notes, like I keep track of where I'm supposed to read from, all over all of his stuff and said, going to burn, going to burn, going to burn, going to burn. Because we need to get things in perspective that uh, all of the stuff that we have isn't going to count for anything. The Lord gives us money for three purposes, for our needs, the needs of others, and to advance the cause of God. And the money that advances the cause of God, Ellen White says, is stored up for you in heaven. You're going to get it back when you get there. I'm not sure what we're going to do with it, because it says that the Lord's going to give us everything. We're just going to try to give give stuff away. So I'm not sure how that's all going to work out. But But that's the three reasons we have money. Councils on uh, Health, Section uh, 8. Those who do not overcome in little things will have no moral power to withstand the greater temptations. 
all who seek to make honesty the ruling principle in their daily business life will need to have be on their guard. Covet no man's silver, nor gold, nor apparel. While they are covet with convenient, or while they are content with convenient food and clothing, it will be found an easy matter to keep the heart and hand from defilement. So it says we're not supposed to want the better things of life, that we just be happy with the things that we actually need. The end times, let me find this one here. This is in Desire, or in uh, The Great Controversy. It's under the chapter 27, The Snares of Satan. As the people of God approach the perils of the last day, Satan holds earnest consultations with his angels at the most, for the most successful plan of overthrowing their faith. So Satan knows things are getting short, and so he holds a meeting with all of his guys. And Ellen White got to be there in vision and see what he said. And this is basically what he says. And this is just about Sabbath keepers. Those are the only people he has to worry about. But it says, go and make the possessors and land and money drunk with the cares of this life. Present the world before them in the most attractive light that they may lay up their treasures here and fix their affections affections upon earthly things. We must do our utmost to prevent those who labor in God's cause from obtaining means to use against us. Keep the money in our own ranks, for the more means they obtain, the more they will injure our kingdom by taking from us our subjects. Make them care more for money than about the building up of Christ's kingdom and, and the spreading of the truth we hate. And we need not fear their influence, for we know that every selfish, covetous person will fall under our power and will finally be separated from God's people. And so the fact that we see a society that's, that has to have houses and has to have cars and has to have clothing and has to have the best of everything. It's, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the, the servant of the Lord said that that would be de- the devil's plan for us, that try to get us to, to get more excited about that than worried about putting money in the offering plate or sending people out or handing out glow tracks or whatever it is. We just get caught up in in making money or caught up in how we're going to spend it. Uh, Our High Calling, chapter 184, or 180, or page 1, chapter, Our High Calling, I don't know, it must just be page 182. The covetous man becomes more covetousness as he draws near his death. The man who all through his life is accumulating earthly treasures cannot readily withdraw himself from the accumulated pursuit. Shall not he who is seeking a heavenly treasure become more earnest, more zealous, and more intense interest in seeking the treasures which are above? 
Shall he not covet the best and most enduring substance? Shall he not seek the crown of glory that is imperishable, the riches which the moth and rust shall not corrupt, nor thieves break in and steal? The more ardent his, ho- ardent his hope and the more strenuous are his efforts and for the more determined he is not to fail of a immortal treasure. His business on earth is to secure eternal riches. He cannot, will not, contend after tasting of the heavenly gifts of God to be a pauper left in destitute for eternity. The soul's passion is more and more. There is a real want of his soul. So we're, we're told that we should be laying up for our treasures in heaven where we will in fact be able to, uh, to be because I know that's where we certainly all would like to end up. And in 1 Timothy 6.10, it says that the love of money, not money itself, just the love of money, 6.10, 1 Timothy, oh, yeah, 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I'm an accountant. And so I, at, I've probably over the 30 years I've done this had over 500 different clients. And I have seen people pierce themselves with many sorrows because of money. That they get all caught up in that and the next thing you know their wife is off somewhere else or their children's are in drug rehab or, and you just fill in the blanks. When they put making money ahead of other things, love of family, love of children, there's a lot of problems. And when you have lots of stuff, you have to worry about that. I mean, you gotta, you have to insure it, and you have to make sure nobody can break in and steal it, and you can't really go away for a long time. Well, the Pierces left a minute ago. They probably went down there. But they left and somebody broke in their house and stole all their stuff while they were gone. You know, I mean, I'm sure that somebody else in here has had their house broken into or their car or they've lost something. But it's a matter that when you have things, uh, as as the the gap between the haves and the have-not continues to go, and down here in Riverside, when when they they say that the unemployment's going down, but in an article in the paper just recently, it says the only reason that it appears that the unemployment is down is that people have given up looking, so they're not taken into account anymore. So when you have to worry about food for your family, people get uh, kind of carried away with things. So if we look in, if we look at the immediate, well, we'll look at people. We talked about David. Uh, how about Lot and his wife? Lot and his wife in Genesis 19:15 through 16. Genesis 19:15 through 16.
And in the morning dawned, and the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, I mean, here's the the messenger of God saying, come on, we have to go. And the two of them are sitting there. And and we've found out in earlier chapters that their children weren't going to go with them. That their families that were married were taken up by the earthly desires. And, and while they were still waiting, then they grabbed them and took them out of the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them out. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot said, Please know, my Lord. Indeed, now, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have increased your mercy with which to show me. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. There's the angels of the Lord telling you to go to the mountains, and he's arguing with the angels of the Lord. And while he was arguing with the angels of the Lord, his wife turned around and looked back. Because that's where her heart was. Her heart was still in Sodom, where her children were and where her house was and where where she lived. And she was more concerned about the things down here than up there. We all need to make that decision that if you're the only one going, you're going to go. I mean, I've seen people say, well, I'm not going to get baptized because my wife doesn't want to join the church or something. You have to decide that if you're the only one that goes to heaven, you're going to go. It'll be worth it. Even if your children and your spouse aren't part of that. How about Achan? Joshua 7.21. You remember that uh, they had crossed over into the promised land and and uh, Joshua, they had just fought this big battle and they won and nobody was killed or hurt. And so Joshua says, here, take these few people and go up to Ai and, and take them out up there. And so they went out and Ai just beat them up, killed a lot of their people. And they, the Israelis came back with their, their uh, tails between their legs, so to speak, and uh, and... And Joshua said, why, Lord, what happened? And he says, well, there's a sin in here. And so they break them up and they have them line up and they go through and they ask, you know, who's and they cast lots. And finally it gets down to uh, to jo- or to Achan. Seven twenty one. When I saw among the spoils. Well, we should make sure you remember that the Lord said, everything you take when when the walls of Jericho come down, you bring it back and it all goes in to the, to the, to the temple. The Levites will take all of that. So when I saw the spoils and the beauty of Babylon garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And they and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So when the Lord, the Lord told Joshua that the reason that they had lost was that somebody had taken something that wasn't theirs. So it cost some lives and it cost a battle. And then do you know what it cost Achan? It cost him, his entire family. They burned them up. 
all their possessions and killed all of his family because he coveted things that weren't his. So we need to be careful about what we, what we covet. And then we look in Acts 5, 1 through 9, Ananias and Sapphira. They went to camp meeting and they got extremely motivated about making a donation of an appreciated piece of property. And they, uh, they said, well, we're going to give this piece of property to the Lord. And then they got around to selling it and found out that it was worth a whole lot more than they ever thought it was. So they said, well, it's still going to be the biggest donation that the camp meeting received. And so we'll just keep some back for us. So Ananias shows up at church and he brings in this big check or this big sack of money and he lays it on the table. And Peter says to him, that all you got? And what? And Ananias said, yep. And bang, he dropped dead right in church during the offering. Because he held some back. I can't, I, I couldn't find the art, but I know that it's in there somewhere. Ellen White says that if, if that same particular event were to happen in our church today, the people holding back their money, that a number of our people would drop dead in church right then, including some of the pastors. But because action is not right now, we think that we're getting away with something. So Ananias drops dead and they take him out and bury him. And Sapphira is at home thinking, well, gosh, we're going to go out. He made reservations at the Olive Garden or something like that. And they were going to go out to dinner and celebrate this big donation that they gave the church. And the fact that he had some money, they had a little money left over. And so time passes and she says, well, I knew I shouldn't have sent him because every time he starts visiting with the brethren, they just get carried away and they just stay and talk and talk and talk. And so she says, I better go check and see what's happening. And so he, she shows up in the church and, uh, and Peter says, is that all you got for that property? And she said, yes. And what happened to her? Dropped dead right in church during the offering. So God has shown his displeasure when we keep back things for them, but it all started out with covetousness. It all started out with some little thought about something. And so your eternal judgment could be on the line. Look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. See, it's an eternal issue here. It's not just one for down here. Therefore, be imitators of God and as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and offering and a sacrifice as a sweet aroma. But fornicators and all the unclean or covetousness, let, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness or foolish talking. You see, sometimes when you read these things, you find things in there that you really need to work on. See, I was going to preach on covetousness, but the thing that popped out of me is foolish talking or coarse jesting. So I've got to work on those guys, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
For this you know, no fornicators, unclean purchase, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. So God's basically saying, if you covet things, you're not going to make it. In Revelation 21.8, to be the last, 21.8, but the coward, the unbelieving, he's talking about who's on the outside of the city, the abominators, the murderers, sexual immorals, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake that will burn with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we found out that idolatry is covetousness. But there is something we're supposed to covet. Do you know what that is? Ellen White says there's something we're supposed to covet. Let me read to you what that is. If we love Jesus, we shall love to live for him, to present our thanks offering to him, a labor for him. The very labor will be light. For we, for his sake, we should covet pain and toil and sacrifice. We shall sympathize with his longing for the salvation of men. We shall feel the same tender craving for souls that he felt. So we are supposed to covet pain, toil, sacrifice. That's a hard sell. Nobody wants to ask for those things. But that's what the servant of the Lord says we should ask for, that we should work for the, saving, for the souls of the lost. So it's, it's a matter that even though it's down at the end of the, end of the Ten Commandments, it's still an extremely important commandment. It causes us to think that that's what brings to action the things that we actually act on is when we start thinking about it or wanting something that we shouldn't have, when we should spend our time coveting the, the robe of righteousness and coveting to be more Christ-like. And I figured that Christ wouldn't left a note on that lady's car, and so I went and got it and ripped it up. So, But uh, that's my hope for all of us, is that we will, in fact, hope to be more like Jesus and get rid of some of those things that we have while we still have time, because they, that while we can still sell and, and give to the cause of the Lord, uh, there will come a day when we can't buy or sell. And all that we have will be useless and will kind of be a millstone around our neck. If we could uh, stand and sing the closing song, number uh, 327, I'd rather have Jesus. 327.